What is a painting? The image of the subject? The style of the artist? Hi, my name's Jean Dalmermuth, and as a paintings conservator, I see them as physical objects, how they're made, and everything that's happened to them since. Let me show you what I see, and you'll never look at a painting the same way again. Now that you know a bit more about the structure of paintings and how they can differ, and how you can tell that just by looking at them, and if you haven't already listened to the previous episodes, I'd encourage you to do that before diving into this one. I want to start looking at the making of paintings in real detail. And I think the best way to do that is to look at different schools of painting. That is, painters working at a particular time and place, and to consider the materials and techniques that they used and why, what they were trying to achieve. I'll start in Europe and go through roughly chronologically because later schools are influenced by and build upon earlier ones. Painters have been making paintings, let's say movable independent easel paintings, for thousands of years. But these are relatively fragile objects, and I'll talk about some of the many ways in which they can be damaged or destroyed in later episodes. So the further back in time you go, the fewer paintings you have but there are still a few very, very old ones that are the ancestors of the first school I'll talk about, and that will be early Italian panel paintings, sometimes called gold ground paintings, because one of their most characteristic features is that they have gold backgrounds. That is, the figures or scenes aren't placed in a realistic landscape or interior, but just against a solid field of gold. Doing this achieves the same kind of effect that Frank Stella did with his metallic paints, an abstraction that could be read either as purely surface or as infinite depth. Because these figures and scenes aren't meant to be understood as simply literal depictions of our physical world or historical events, to the people who made them and those that first saw them, they were visions of eternity. As I mentioned in a previous episode, this was a world where essentially all of the imagery is religious, and by that meaning Christian, Catholic, because that was the foundation of the culture. It's not really until you get to about the 15th century that other genres, such as historical or mythological paintings or portraiture, become important, and landscapes and still lives are even a bit later. In this world, before about 1400, one of the most ubiquitous images was that of the Madonna and Child and that's the subject of all of the paintings I'm going to talk about in this episode. The Madonna, which literally translates as My Lady in Italian, is Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's the central figure of Christianity. She holds him as a baby, as a child, or at least a small person. As such, they are the figures from the New Testament, but the poses, the forms in which they're presented, aren't exactly illustrations from their lives, but were developed over the centuries as certain types, certain conventions, that you'll see repeated over and over again. Now, this type of maternal image is an archetype that exists far beyond the bounds of Christianity. A clear precursor are the sculptures of the ancient Egyptian goddess Isis with her son Horus. And going back much further, archaeologists have found a type of image, a sort of generational totem sculpture, at Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, a sculpture that is something like 10,000 years old. 
That's made of solid stone, which is much more durable than paint on canvas or wood, but points out that this maternal mother goddess concept is very deeply rooted in human consciousness. In the paintings I'm talking about, the Madonna may be standing or sitting, and she could be sitting on a throne or maybe on a cushion on the ground, or maybe you only see her from the waist up, so you can't tell if she's standing or sitting. She's likely dressed in a mantle or cape, which also covers her head like a veil. This is often dark blue, sometimes embroidered with a few stars. Often she wears a red dress that peeks out from underneath this. Generally, she holds the child so that they both face us, and he might be wrapped in a cloth or wearing some kind of shirt or toga-like garment. Sometimes the textiles are richly embellished with gold. The child may actually look like a baby, or may have the face of a grown man, sometimes even an old man. There were a few of these that date back at least as far as the 6th century, that are at least 1,500 years old. Imagine that, physical objects that people have preserved for that many generations. These were never buried intentionally or accidentally, like archaeological artifacts, never lost, never forgotten about. And people kept them safe because they saw these works as being incredibly important and precious, even sacred. Now, the status of these objects can get complicated and theoretically thorny, and I'm not going into that. I'm focused on them as physical objects. But note that they're not being worshipped as such. Rather, they serve both as a focus for devotion and as a reminder of the divine. Imagine a cherished heirloom, even if it isn't materially precious. It helps you hold on to memories. We today may or may not feel connected to the religious aspect of these paintings. We live in a different world than the one in which they were made, but can still appreciate them for their beauty, for the craftsmanship involved in making them, and as cultural artifacts that tell us about another time and place. One of these very early Madonnas from the 6th century is in the church of Santa Maria Antiqua, literally ancient St. Mary in Rome which is actually in the ancient Roman Forum. And you can find images of this and other paintings I'll talk about on my website. Hung high up, this painting is difficult to read. It's clearly very worn and has been overpainted many times. The figures have an abstracted quality. The proportions, modeling, and coloring are not at all realistic. The Madonna's head seems huge, yet her forehead is small and her nose extremely thin. Her face is so pale it's almost white, but her hands are a golden olive green. The child's face is blurred and patchy, without any clear features. The almost blackness of their robe is just a kind of shapeless mass that contrasts sharply with the brightness of the gold. The gold, although it may have been restored somewhat, still shines. Gold doesn't tarnish. As long as it isn't worn away, it looks exactly the same forever. Because there are so few of these truly ancient paintings, it's hard to make generalizations about how they were made. But as I said, they're clearly linked, both in style and in technique, to later paintings. And starting from about the year 1200, which is still a long, long time ago, we have enough paintings to look at so that we can draw more general conclusions. And from then up until about 1400, 1450, it really is a continuous tradition. 250 years of history linked by raw materials and the ideas that shaped them into paintings. 
In the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, there are two paintings that illustrate this. The earlier one was painted around 1275, long enough ago that the name of the painter has been lost. But art historians have put together a small group of paintings that they believe, based on stylistic grounds, to all be by the same painter. One of those is an image of Mary Magdalene with scenes from her life, and so this painter is known as the Master of the Magdalene, or the Magdalene Master. The Met has three paintings attributed to this master, all of which depict the Madonna and Child. One of those is a triptych, meaning it's made of three separate panels, and in this case, they're hinged together so that the two side panels can fold in and over the center one. It's a fairly small painting. Folded up, it would be about 16 inches high, about 40 centimeters, and 11 inches or 28 centimeters wide. A large coffee table book could be that size. If you unfold it, but not all the way, not flat, it could stand up on its own on a table, kind of like a greeting card can. And that's what it's meant to do, to stand up as a small devotional piece in front of someone who would kneel and pray. When not in use, the painting could be folded up for easy transport. The central figures are the Madonna and Child, she in a blue mantle which covers her head, he in a red garment. She's seated on a throne, and he sits on her proper right knee. There's a kind of space here, but it's an abstract kind of space. While the figures and the throne are understood to be three-dimensional, they also look flat. The modeling of her knees, for example, is indicated by folds of her red dress, suggested by shadows of red and highlights of white, but these aren't at all blended, so that they're basically stripes put down next to each other. This isn't how three-dimensional forms look in real life. Scale is also not realistic. Within the same central panel surrounding the Madonna and Child are four more figures, but while they sort of occupy the same space, they're smaller in scale than the central figures, almost like they're dolls. Meanwhile, the more important figures, the Madonna and Child, are larger. To further complicate matters, one of the other four figures is Mary herself, with the angel Gabriel, who is announcing to her that she will give birth, so we're seeing her twice, in two different kinds of roles, within the same scene. Two different events happening, and I put that in quotes, simultaneously. So this is neither time nor space as we know them. The Met has another Madonna and Child that dates from about 230 years later, one painted by Luca Signorelli, whom you may remember as a contemporary of Botticelli. It's about the same size, but if you put them right next to each other, they would look very different. In the later painting, the figures look much more real, and putting that in quotes, much more convincingly three-dimensional. And so, for example, the shadows and highlights of the folds of her red dress blend smoothly into each other. You could imagine this being a garment in real life. There are also major differences in how the figures are dressed. The Madonna's head is uncovered, and the baby is naked. And both of those differences in imagery have symbolic meaning that I won't go into. But there are also similarities between the two paintings, similarities beyond being the same subject. In Cinerelli's painting, the Madonna and Child are also set against a gold background, just like in the earlier painting. It's gold, but with a difference. Here, it could almost be read as a cloth of gold or a stained glass window, because it's divided into sections, roundels within a border. 
and inhabiting those are puti, small childlike angels, set among scrolling vines and other ornaments, including the profiles of Roman emperors, like images on coins. This decoration on the gold is all painted, or sketched really, in a translucent red paint so that the gold shines through, which is why this imagery is both there and not, and again, could be read as something solid or completely ethereal, not limited to a specific time and place. Painted a bit after the year 1500, Signorelli's painting, with its gold background, would have been an old-fashioned type of an image at the time. This is really the end point in our time frame for early Italian panels. But it utilizes many of the same materials and techniques as the Magdalene masters. Not only would the gold have been applied using exactly the same method, but the ground that that gold is on and the panel that that ground is on were made in exactly the same way. And you can imagine a line of descent from the earlier artist to the later, master to apprentice, each passing on the methods to make those paintings. On the other hand, a big part of the difference in the look of the forms, the flatness versus the three-dimensionality of the drapery, for example, is because while the Magdalene master used egg tempera for his paint, just like Botticelli usually did, Signorelli used oil, like Rembrandt. And just changing that one material can make a very different looking painting. And that was intentional. The ideas of what a painting should look like and the materials to make it look like that changed in tandem. I'm going to spend the next few episodes discussing all of those materials, the methods of crafting early Italian panels. That'll introduce a lot of fundamental concepts that will continue through the whole history of painting technique. While this is a complex painting technique, in that there are a lot of steps in this process, it's not so very complicated. It's not so difficult to describe all of those different steps, and there aren't huge variations between different painters, especially when compared to modern painters who have personal, readily identifiable styles and techniques. I'm really focusing on Italy, and primarily Tuscany, with Florence at its center, but a lot of what I'll say is essentially true for other areas of Europe. The focus on Italy is partly because those paintings have been studied a lot, and part of that is because a good number have survived and ended up in collections where they could be studied. To start with the broad outlines of how these paintings are made, the layers of the layer cake, the support is generally wood, and in Tuscany, the species of wood is often poplar. The ground is what we call gesso, meaning animal glue binder that is filled with pulverized calcium sulfate. There's a certain amount of what you would typically think of as underdrawing, actually drawn lines, but some of the design is going to be laid out on the ground by incising, that is scratching into it. Then what you might call the design layer, the image that you see, starts with the gilding in the background, and there might also be gold details added as a final touch, like in Botticelli's Birth of Venus. The paint is generally bound in egg tempera medium up until about 1450 when oil began to be used. So how do we know all of this? First of all, and always the most important, is what you can see just by looking. Then there's also scientific analysis, which can identify a lot of the materials. But also for this group of paintings, we have some important written documents from the same time as the paintings. The most important and best known of those is a book that was written right around 1400. And by book, 
obviously meaning that this was a manuscript. It was written out by hand, and copies were made by hand. This was before the introduction of movable type and the printed book. It was written by a Florentine painter named Cennino Cennini, and has been translated into English and published as The Craftsman's Handbook. Its Italian title probably gives a better idea of its origin and original purpose, Il Libro dell'Arte, which means the Book of the Guild, because Cennino was writing this for the Painters' Guild, which, like other guilds, both regulated training and trade within a craft and was also a kind of social organization. Painters were trained by apprenticeship, working from around the age of eight in the workshop of a master, learning all of the many steps involved in making a painting, and eventually joining the guild themselves, at which point they could open a workshop of their own. These painters saw themselves as craftsmen, and they were almost entirely men, who were making something that was useful for their society, just as stonemasons built buildings and bakers baked bread. Cennino's book was really meant as a record of the processes of making paintings, meant for people already within the trade. It's not a how-to book to be used by amateurs who want to try their hands at painting. That wasn't really a thing at the time. So there are a lot of details that he presumes the reader already knows and doesn't bother to spell out, things like exactly how much of something to use or how long things take to do. And that means that for us modern readers who don't already know this, you have to do some reading between the lines, but what he wrote is incredibly useful for us. When you're trying to reverse engineer how something was done, it helps to have some record of the process and not just have to rely on the end product. Janino writes about making paintings, but also about other different crafts, frescoes and stained glass, polychrome sculpture, and even designs for embroidery. Craftsmen of his day might be called upon to make many different types of objects. But that highlights our modern distinction between what a painting is and what it's not. And for the purposes of this podcast, I'm following that modern definition, which for me breaks down into the specialties of conservation. Conservators today generally specialize by material. So I'm a paintings conservator and primarily work on easel paintings. That is, they're on movable supports, even if they're sometimes quite large, and are generally based on that layer cake structure other types of artworks would go to different conservators. Works on paper, for example, and those can be drawings or prints or watercolors, are treated by paper conservators because they know a lot about paper itself, how it's made, how it ages, how it can be treated. Photographs, even if they're on paper supports, have complex chemistry of their own and so generally are treated by photograph conservators. And there are many other types of conservators that can be more or less specialized. So some textile conservators work only on costumes, that is, historic clothing, while others might also work on tapestries. There's the broad specialty of objects conservators, who work primarily on things that are meant to be seen in the round, and that might include ancient stone sculpture or modern ceramics. And there's some overlap, but generally different types of works fall into different categories. Easel paintings are closely related to some other types of works. For example, polychrome sculptures, meaning wooden sculptures, often human figures carved in the round, which are realistically painted, have a similar layer cake structure, but they're different in that the paint isn't really being used to create an illusion, and also that they might, after hundreds of years, have different kinds of structural problems, let's say an outstretched arm that is in danger of breaking off. 
On the other hand, manuscript illuminations, that is, paintings created within books, do use paint to create an illusion, but their support, often parchment, which is a type of animal skin, is physically and chemically different than most easel paintings. And they may be bound as a book, which has a lot of engineering involved. Frescoes, murals painted on wet plaster on walls, look a lot like easel paintings, but not only have different chemistry going on, but are also affected by being actually parts of buildings permanently attached to walls. Chinino wrote about these different crafts in different chapters, all of which contain information useful today. In addition to Chinino's book and a few others like it, we have other written materials that help understand these paintings. Some of those documents are the contracts that were written between a craftsman and a patron who was commissioning a painting. The patron might be a wealthy individual, or an aristocratic family, or a church, or a monastery, or maybe a guild, who's decided that they want to commission an altarpiece or other type of painting for a specific church or chapel. Those contracts not only talk about subjects, prices, and time frames agreed upon, but also materials. The patron might actually supply some of the more expensive materials, particularly the gold or some of the more expensive pigments. And those materials mattered in their world in a way they don't really today, mattered beyond their monetary value and the prestige value that that might bring. The medieval mindset was very different from ours, and their explanation of how things worked was completely different than how our modern science, chemistry, and physics explains the world. Because in the world these craftsmen lived in, the physical world was understood to be a reflection of the spiritual world, which was as real as our tangible reality and ultimately more important. So materials had a multi-layered symbolic significance. Gold had a material value, yes, but it also had a spiritual meaning. The fact that it's bright and reflective and doesn't tarnish was seen as being an embodiment of spiritual permanence and purity. It's the color of the sun, which is the source of light and life. So the gold backgrounds of these paintings, these abstracted settings in which these figures and scenes are placed, aren't just any abstracted setting. It's an intimation of the divine. If you're at all interested in medieval material and spiritual philosophy, I highly recommend the book The Alchemy of Paint by Spike Bucklow, a conservation scientist who's very interested in medieval materials. Painters bought many of those raw materials, like pigments, from apothecaries who also sold medicines. In Florence, painters, apothecaries, and doctors all belonged to the same guild, the Arte dei Medici e Speciali, the Guild of Doctors and Apothecaries. In other cities, the Painters Guild was often named after St. Luke the Evangelist, who was, by tradition, both a doctor and a painter. There were a few very old paintings that, by tradition, were painted by St. Luke. One of these is in the Papal Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome, and is called Solus Populi Romani, the health or salvation of the people of Rome. It certainly dates back to at least the year 600, even if the image has been repainted and restored many times. Over the centuries, it's been the center of prayers for the ends of plagues or victories in wars. So in the medieval period, painting was understood to be an important craft, one that was connected to the divine. At the same time, it was by making and selling those paintings that these craftsmen were earning a living. They needed to be productive. 
And one way to work efficiently without sacrificing the quality of the workmanship was to make multiples of the same image, that is, using the same design. So you'll see multiple versions of Madonnas in exactly the same pose, often exactly the same size, in multiple places. For example, there are Madonnas by Bernardo Dadi, a Florentine painter from the first half of the 14th century, in the Vatican Museums and the Getty Museum, that are virtually identical. The exact same pose, clothing, expression, everything. There are several others by that painter that are very similar to each other, with slight but sometimes meaningful changes. For example, the child may be holding a goldfinch in one and clutching his mother's dress in another. Examples of those are at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore and the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Sometimes they also vary in condition. How worn is the gold? How cracked is the paint? Has the panel split? Because although they all started out in the same workshop, they've lived very different lives over the century, being subject to different conditions, and so they've aged in slightly different ways. But fundamentally, they're very close to each other. You're not seeing double. These are different versions of the same painting. As I've said previously, images of the Madonna were something almost anyone at the time would have wanted to have, and these didn't need to be unique images. That wasn't their function. That was to be a vision of something beyond this world, the intangible made tangible. While we now may see them as beautiful objects that have a particular style and a historical meaning, the people who first saw them looked up at them and wondered, what is this? The music you hear is 1600 in Vienna by Sujay Govindaraj, and I found it on Tribe of Noise. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.